Hello. Hello. Welcome to Infinite Cast. Podgest. Podgest. Uh, we are watching Wimbledon live. Live. Live streaming coverage of Wimbledon. Usually we just watch tennis highlights, but this time we've got it uh, straight from the source. It's a spontaneous dissemination, you can it say. It is a spontaneous dissemination of uh, Wimbledon. So oh, Okay, so... Onan, an organization of North American nations, obviously references Onanism, which is the common shorthand for giving you giving your business the old one too. Yes. Uh, wait, a, a spontaneous dissemination is isn't that sort of like a, maybe a quote, a quote of like a, a a little bit of a reference to you know I don't know the same same thing. Are you referring to an ejaculation <laughs> as a spontaneous dissemination? I like that. Sem is in the word. It's the yeah. etymology. Yes. That is good. Uh, good point. It's, you know, just a little little dick joke. You got to sprinkle your novel with little dick little jokes. Little dick jokes. Yeah, here and there. Um, last week we were talking about movies. <laughs> <laughs> movies, yes. Um, cinema. And cinema. And somebody um, followed up with some background on some of the discussion we were talking about. I don't know. Especially RE, um, DFW's opinion on Quentin Tarantino. Oh, yes. Yes. Um, I don't know if I should... We'll say that toward to the end. Sure. Why don't you go ahead and get started? Let's get into it. Yeah. I think I might have fell fell off mid sentence after an end note. Uh, so I'll get back into it. Okay, great. Uh, a click and a half straight downhill from ETA. Joel is hitting the reality is for people that can't handle drugs group. A meeting of the NA Splinter Cocaine Anonymous, which I already read the end note, so I won't do that. Mostly because the meetings in the St. Elizabeth's Hospital Grand Rounds Auditorium, just a couple floors down from where Don Gately whom she just got done visiting and mopping the massive unconscious forehead of, is lying in the trauma wing in a truly bad way. CA mm. meetings have a long preamble and endless little Xerox formalities they read aloud at the start is one reason Joelle avoids CA. But the opening stuff is done by the time she gets down and comes in and gets some burnt urn bottom coffee and finds an available seat. The only empty seats are in the meeting's back row, Denial Isle, the back rows are usually called, and Joelle is surrounded by catexic newcomers crossing and uncrossing their legs every few seconds and sniffing compulsively and looking like they're wearing everything they own. Plus, there's the row of standing men. There's a certain hard-faced type of male in Boston fellowships who refuses ever to sit for meetings, standing <laughs> behind the back row, legs set wide and arms crossed, and talking to each other out the sides of their mouths and she can tell the standing men are looking at her bare knees over her shoulder, making little comments about the knees and the veil. She thinks with fearful sentiment, which takes us to EndNote 292, uh, fearful partly because the Ennett House's, House staff strongly discourages residents forming, sorry, I'm trying to turn the page of the EndNote, uh, it's so hard, any kind of sentimental attachment to members of the opposite sex during their 19-month stay, which stay takes us to... Uh, uh, footnote a subnote subnote a this is a corollary of boston's aa's suggestion that single newcomers not get romantically involved for their first year of sobriety the big reason for this boston aa's with time will explain if pinned down is that the sudden removal of substances leaves an enormous ragged hole in the psyche of the newcomer the pain of which the newcomer is supposed to feel and be driven kneeward by and pray to have filled by boston aa and the old higher power and intense romantic involvements offer a delusive analgesic for the pain of the whole and tend to make the involvees clamp onto one another like convalescence, con, con, covalence-hungry isotopes <laughs> and substitute each other for meetings and activity 
uh, in a group and surrender. And then if the involvement doesn't pan out, which like how many between newcomers do you suppose do? Both involvees are devastated and in even more whole pain than before and now don't have the intensive working AA-dependent strength to make it through the devastation without going back to the substance. Rele- relevant gnomes here might include addicts don't have relationships, they take hostages, sick, uh, <laughs> and an alcoholic is a relief-seeking missile, and so on. The no involvement thing tends to be the waterloo of all suggestions for newcomers and celibacy is often the issue that separates those who hang from those who go back out there. Um, So that was endnote A during their nine month stay to say nothing of attachment to staffers. And this is all, of course, while Joel is feeling fearful. Uh, That makes sense to me. Yes. Probably shouldn't date when when in the uh, heights of uh, recent recovery. Yes, uh, th- this is why I think this is the subtext of why maybe some people maybe some people had a parasocial relationship with John Mulaney, and some people were like, "You just went to rehab, and now you're having a baby with a woman." Yes. Interesting. Oh Lord, where did I go? Um, <laughs> sorry. A fearful sentiment of Don Gately, a tube down his throat, torn by fever and guilt and shoulder pain offered Demerol by well-meaning but clueless MDs, in and out of delirium, torn, convinced that certain men with hats wished him ill, looking at his room's semi-private ceiling like it would eat him if he dropped his guard. That, that's what Don is doing right now. Okay. The big blackboard up on the stage says, the reality is for people that can't handle drugs group welcomes tonight's commitment speakers, the freeway access group from Mattapan, which is deep in the colored part of Boston, where Cocaine Anonymous tends to be most heavily concentrated. The speaker just starting in at the podium where Joel sits down is a tall, yellowish-colored man with a weightlifter's build and frightening eyes, slow and a kind of tannin brown. He's been in CA seven months, he says. He eschews the normal CA drugologues' macho war stories and gets right to his bottom, his jumping-off place. Joel can tell he's trying to tell the truth and not just posturing and performing the way so many CAs seem like they do. His stories full of colored idioms and those annoying little colored hand motions and gestures. But to Joelle, it doesn't seem like she cares that much anymore. She can identify. The truth has a kind of irresistible, unconscious attraction at meetings, no matter what the color or fellowship. Even Denial Isle and the standing men are absorbed by the colored man's story. The colored man says his thing is he'd had a wife and a little baby daughter at home in Mattapan's Perry Hill Projects and another baby on the way. He'd managed to hang on to his menial riveter's assistant job at Universal Bleacher right up the street from here in Enfield because his addiction to crank cocaine wasn't every day. He smoked on your binge-type basis, mostly weekends. Hellacious, psychopathic, bank account emptying, emptying binges, though. Like getting strapped to a Raytheon missile and you don't stop till that missile stops, Jim. He says his wife had got temp work cleaning houses, but when she worked, they had to put their little girl in a daycare that just about ate her day's pay. So his paycheck was like their total float, and his weekend binges with a glass pipe caused them no end of financial insecurity, which he mispronounces. Which brings him to his last binge, the bottom, which predictably occurred on a payday. This check just had to go for groceries and rent. They were two months back, and there was not jack shit in the house in the way of to eat. At a smoke break at a universal bleacher, he'd made sure and bought just one single vial for just a Tensky for a Sunday night treat after a weekend of abstinence and groceries and quality time with his pregnant wife and little daughter. 
The wife and little daughter were to meet him after work right off the bus stop at Brighton Best Savings, right under the big clock, to help him deposit the paycheck right then and there. He let his wife stipulate the meeting at the bank because he knew in a self-disgusted way, even then, that there was this hazard of paycheck-type incidents from binges he'd pulled in the past, and their financial insecurity was now whatever words passed the word deep shit, and he knew goddamn well he could not afford to fuck up this time. He says that's how he used to think of it to himself, fucking up. He didn't even make it to the bus after clocking out, he said. Two other Holmeses, which takes us to end note 293, apparently the current colored word for other coloreds. Joelle Van Dyne, by the way, was acculturated in a part of the USA where verbal attitudes toward black people are dated and unconsciously derisive and is doing pretty much the best she can, colored and so on, and anyway is a paragon of racial sensitivity compared to the sort of culture Don Gately was conditioned in. Okay, so he is writing her perspective as say, seeing this person as, quote, colored yes. in, in a, in a uh, footnote is like... Just so you know, this is slightly racist. Just so you know, she, th- this is racist, but not as racist as other people in this book. <laughs> mm. Anyway, uh, back it to... Is, well, I mean, it is because it's like... that. That is interesting because it does give a little hint about who the narrator of the book is, you know? Mm-hmm. Which is that apparently it shifts, mm-hmm. you know? And that, uh, or at least it is... Uh, keyed into the perspective or interior monologue of the multiple people of multiple people yeah as the characters um go i mean i don't know if that that's useful literary analysis other than that's very useful it's like the whole it's the whole thing really it's the infinite gist of it (laughs) who's talking whose story i guess it's just always the the presence of footnotes in addition to being like a little like uh book goof that he is doing yeah and the like which I, I, I respect just on the fr- front level for, hey, that's just opportunity for extra jokes. Yeah, of course. <laughs> you know, uh, but it does imply that there this is like some kind of like sourced tome. Yeah. That is like referencing outside works and has some kind of academic authority to it. Academic authority. So yeah. allowing it then to shift between the perspective, it do- then saying it doesn't have a singular perspective, but it rather has contains the perspective of each person. I don't know. It's interesting. It I, is interesting. I agree. Okay. Thank you. Do you thank you for concurring. I concur. Uh, two other Holmeses in Riveting had three vials each, which vials they had like brandished at him, and he'd kicked in his one vial because two and a third vials ver- versus one thin ass Sunday night vial was only a fucking fool way out of touch with the whole seize the opportunity concept could pass that shit up. In short, it was the familiar insanity of money in the pocket and no defense against the urge, and the thought of his woman holding his little girl in her little knit cap and mittens standing under the big clock in cold March dusk didn't so much get pushed aside as somehow shrink to a tiny locket-sized picture in the center of a part of him he and the Holmeses had set out busily to kill with the pipe. He says he never made the bus. Uh, they passed a bottle of rye around the old Ford Mystique, one of the Holmeses profiled, and fired up right in the car. And after he once fired up with money in his pocket, the fat woman with the little helmet with horns on it done already like fucking sang, Jim. Which takes us to 294. Helmet in the horns. It's a Boston-colored thing on commitments to make all speech a protracted apostrophe to some absent Jim, Joel's observed in a neutral sociologic way. This uh, this seems like made up. <laughs> I don't know how, if David Foster Wallace ever spoke to a, a, black, a black person, person when he was writing this. He's, I mean, he went to AA, apparently. In so, Boston. So surely he's may- maybe met some people unlike him, but I don't know. Jim. As we've said before, 
it seems like he is very good at observing people and not very good at talking to people. Yes. The man's hands grip the sides of the podium and he rests his weight on his elbow-locked arms in a way that conveys both abjection and pluck. He invites the CAs to let's just draw the curtain of charity over the rest of the night scene, which, after the check-cashing stop, got hazy with missile exhaust anyhow. But so he finally did get home to Mattapan the next morning, Saturday morning, sick and green-yellow and on that mean post-crank slide, dying for more and willing to kill for more and yet so mortified and ashamed of having done fucked up again that just going up the elevator to their apartment was maybe the bravest thing he'd ever done up to that point, he felt. It was like 0600 in the AM and they weren't there. There was nobody home and in the sort of way where the place's emptiness pulsed and breathed. An envelope was slid under the door from the BHA, which takes us to note 295, Boston Housing Authority. Back to the text. Not the salmon color of an eviction notice, but a green last warning re-rent. And he went into the kitchen and opened up the fridge, hating himself for hoping there was a beer. In the fridge was a jar of grape jelly, near empty, and a half a can of biscuit mix. And that, plus a sour, empty fridge odor, was all, Jim. A little plastic jar of labelless food bank peanut butter, so empty its insides had knife scrapes on the sides. And a little clotted box of salt was all there was in the whole rest of the kitchen. But what sent his face clear down off his skull and broke him in two, though, was he he said when he saw the Pam shiny empty biscuit pan on top of the stove and the plastic rind of the peanut butter safety seal wrap on top of the wastebasket's tall pile. The little locket picture in the back of his head swelled and became a sharp-focused scene of his wife and little girl and little unborn child eating what he could now see they must have eaten last night and this morning while he was out ingesting their groceries and rent. This was his cliff edge, his personal intersection of choice, standing there loose-faced in the kitchen, running his finger around a shiny pan with not one little crumb of biscuit left in it. He sat down on the kitchen tile with his scary eyes shut tight, but still seeing his little girl's face. They'd ate some charity peanut butter on biscuits washed down with tap water and a grimace. Their apartment was six floors up in Perry Hills, building number five. The window didn't open, but could be broke through with a running start. He didn't kill himself, though, he says. He just got up and walked out. He didn't leave his wife a note. Not nothing. He went and walked the whole four clicks to Shattuck Shelter in Jamaica Plain. He felt like for sure they'd have been better off without him, he said. But he didn't know why, but he didn't kill himself. But he didn't. He figures there was some God involvement sitting there on the floor. He just decided to go to Shattuck and surrender and get straight and never, ever have his little girl's grimacing face in his hungover head ever again, James. And <laughs> <laughs> Shattuck Shelter, by coincidence, that usually had a waiting list every March until it got warm, they just kicked out some sorry-ass specimen for defecating in the shower, and they <laughs> took him, the speaker. He asked for a CA meeting right away. And a Shattuck staff guy called somebody Afro-American with a lot of clean, recovered time. And the speaker uh, got taken into his first CA meeting. That was 224 days ago tonight. That night, when the colored CA crocodile dropped him off back at the Shattuck after he'd wept in front of other colored men at his first meeting and told men he didn't know from shit about the big clock and glass pipe and paycheck and the biscuits and his little girl's face. And after he come back to the shattuck and got buzzed through and the buzzer sounded for supper, it turned out, by coincidence, that the Saturday night shattuck supper was coffee and peanut butter sandwiches. It was the end of the week and the shelter's donated food had run out. They had only PB on cheap-ass white bread and Sunny Square instant coffee, the cheap shit that doesn't even dissolve, uh, quite dissolve all the way. 
He's got your autodidactic orators way with emotional dramatic pauses that don't seem affected. Joelle makes another line down the styrofoam coffee cup with her fingernail and chooses consciously to believe it isn't effective, the story's emotive drama. Her eyes feel sandy from forgetting to blink. This always happens when you don't expect it, uh, when it's a meeting you have to drag yourself to and are all but sure it will suck. The speaker's face has lost its color, shape, everything distinctive. Something has taken the tight ratchet in Joelle's belly and turned it three turns to the good. It's the first time she's felt sure she wants to keep straight, no matter what it means facing. No matter if Don Gately takes Demerol or goes to jail or rejects her if she can't show him the face. It's the first time in a long time, tonight, 11.14, Joelle's even considered possibly showing somebody the face. After the pause, the speaker says all the other sorry motherfuckers in the Shattuck shelter in there started into bitching about what was this shit, peanut butter sandwiches for fucking supper. The speaker says how whatever he, whatever, he silently thanked for just that particular sandwich he held and chewed, washing it down with gritty sunny square coffee. That thing became his higher power. He's now got seven plus months clean. Universal Bleacher let him go, but he's got steady work at Logan, pushing a third shift mop, and a Holmes on his cruise also in the program, by coincidence. His pregnant wife, it turned out, had gone to an unwed mother's shelter with Chantel that night. She was still in there. DSS still wouldn't let, let him appeal his wife's restraining order and see Chantel, but he got to talk to his little girl on the phone just last month. And now he's straight from giving up and joining the freeway access group and getting active and taking the voluntary suggestions of the fellowship of Cocaine Anonymous. His wife was due to have her baby around Xmas. He says he didn't know what was going to happen to him or his family, but he says he has received certain promises from his new family, the freeway access group of Cocaine Anonymous, and so he had certain hope-type emotions about the future inside. <laughs> he didn't so much conclude or make obligatory reference to gratitude or any of that usual shit as glip, grip the lectern and shrug and say he'd started feeling just last month that the choice he made on the kitchen floor was the right choice, personally speaking. That's the end of that section. He does, he does love a harrowing addiction story. Yes, he, yes, he does. Uh well, that would be a very short one. We were only at 18 minutes. How let's, much? Let's get into a little more Blood Sister. Okay, great. We're back to Blood Sister? <laughs> yeah, of course. Okay, great. But the movie's not over. <laughs> Entertainment-wise, things take a rapid turn for the splattery once the tough girl Blood Sister seemed to have saved is found bluely dead in her novitiate's cot. Uh, novitiate? Novitiate's? Novitiate's? Is that, uh, it's like a new, a new nun. A new nun? Fresh nun. Her habit's interior pockets stuffed with all kinds of substances and paraphernalia and her arm a veritable forest of syringes. Tight shot of BS, face working purply, staring down at the XX punker. Suspecting foul play instead of spiritual recidivism, Blood Sister, disregarding first the other cheek pieties and then the impassioned pleas and then the direct orders of the Vice Mother Superior, who happens now to be the tough nun who saved Blood Sister way back, begins reverting to her former Toronto Mean Street pre-salvation tough biker chick ways, demufflering her Harley hog hauling an age-faded stud-covered leather bike jacket out of storage and squeezing it over her pectoral swollen habit, unbandaging her most lurid tattoos, shaking down former altar boys for information, flipping off motorists who get in her bike's way, meeting old street contacts in dim saloons and tossing back jiggers with even the most serotic of them, beating 
bludgeoning, aikidoing, disarming thugs of power tools, avenging the desalva- desalvation and demapping of her young charge, determined to prove that the girl's death was no accident or backslide, that blood sister had not failed with the soul she'd chosen to save to discharge her own soul's debt to the tough old vice mother superior who'd saved her, blood, uh, blood sister, so far back. <laughs> Several thuggish stuntmen and countless liters of potassium thiocyanate, which takes us to in note 296, mixes five to one with ferric chloride to produce A plus B blood, an FX staple of low-budget splatter films. Mm. Back to the text. Uh, later, the truth does out. The novitiate girl had been murdered by the mother superior, the order's top and toughest nun. The, this mother superior, sorry, this MS is the nun who'd saved the vice MS, who'd saved Blood Sister, meaning, ironically, that the evidence Blood Sister needs to prove that her salvation debt really was discharged is also evidence inimical to the legal interests of the tough nun to whom Blood Sister's own savior is obligated. <laughs> So Blood Sister gets increasingly tortured and ill-tempered as evidence of the Mother Superior's guilt accretes. In one scene, she says, fuck. In another, she swings a censer like a mace and brains an old verger who's one of the Mother Superior's stooges, knocking his toothless head clean off. Then, (laughs) Then in Act 3, a veritable orgy of retribution follows the full emergence of the sordid truth. It seems that the old, uh, that the tough old vice mother superior, viz. the nun who'd saved blood sister, had in fact not been saved truly after all. Had in fact, during 20 plus years of exemplary novena saying and wafer baking, been suffering a kind of hidden degenerative recidivist soul rot and had resumed the vice MS at about the time blood sister had donned the habit of full nunhood, had not only resumed substance dependence, but had started actually dealing in serious weights of whatever at the time was most profitable, which after 20 plus years had changed from Marseillaise heroin to Colombian freebasable grade Bing Crosby to support her own (laughs) hidden habit, covertly operating a high volume retail operation out of the order's community outreach rescue missions, little used confessionals. (laughs) This nun's superior, the top tough mother superior nun stumbling onto the drug operation after the now demapped verger informed her that a suspicious number of limousines were discharging gold chained and not very penitent looking persons into the order's community outreach rescue mission and disastrously unable to summon the pious humility to accept the fact that she'd failed, it seemed, at truly and forever saving the ex-dealer whose salvation the mother superior required to discharge the debt to the now-retired octogenarian nun who'd saved her. (laughs) This mother superior herself is the one who murdered Blood Sister's ex-punk novitiate to silence the girl. What emerges is this is that Blood Sisters' addicted punk girl's substance-copping venue when she was out there pre-salvation had been nothing other than the Vice Mother Superior's infamous community outreach rescue mission. In other words, the nun who'd saved Blood Sister but had herself been secretly unsaved had been the tough girl's bing dealer, is why the tough non-Catholic girl had been so mysteriously adept at the confitior. Confitior? The Order's Mother Superior had figured that it was only a matter of time before the girl's conversion and salvation reached the sort of spiritual pitch where her guarded silence broke and she told Blood Sister the seamy truth about the nun she, Blood Sister, thought had saved her, Blood Sister. So she, the Mother Superior, had eliminated the girl's map. This is the problem with uh, movies that... uh, uh, past the Bechtel test is when you t- say she, who are you referring to? Yes. Blood sister, 
the vice MS or the MS or the tough girl. Yeah, this is why it's more convenient to only have one woman in your movies. Have one woman and then you definitely know, you know who, who you're talking she is, about yes. when it's she. Oh, so she, the mother superior, had eliminated the girl's map. Ostensibly, she, the mother superior, told her lieutenant, the vice mother superior, to save her, the vice mother superior, from exposure and excommunication and maybe worse if the girl weren't silenced. She takes us to endnote 297. The cartridge's repetitive emphasis on the mother superior's desire to silence the novitiate leads B. Boone, a lazy student but very bright girl, to opine that the silent brown cowled trappists who've been hanging superfluously around the film's edges like some mute Greek chorus have been serving a symbolic rather than a narrative function, which strikes Hal as perceptive. <laughs> This movie seems overcomplicated by having four generations of nuns. It seems yeah, like, I feel you, like could you could do the, three. Get the job done with three. I would agree. Uh, let's brush up. Let's let's. Uh, <laughs> uh, that would be my my studio script. punch up. That's your this. studio punch up, right? Of <laughs> yeah. course, this is you at the shiny table with pastries in the middle. Yeah, exactly. In, the, in Hollywood, or I guess maybe so James, Century I love, City. I love the concept. I love the whole throwback uh, grindhouse uh, re- uh, chick women in trouble chick revenge thing here. I'm just saying. Why does it have to be a mother superior and a vice mother superior? This seems unnecessarily complicated. Too many characters for the audience to remember. Just make the the central blood sisters mother superior the one who betrays her. Yes. 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 I agree. This narratively prolix and tangled stuff all gets explicated at near kabuki volume during an appalling free-for-all in the office of the mother superior who hadn't saved the vice MS, who'd saved blood sister, with the two senior nuns who'd been tough and unsaved back in the Ontarian days when men were men and so were drug-addicted bike chicks. Okay? Teaming up and kicking blood sister's ass. The fight scene, a blur of swirling habitements... Habitaments? It's uh, hyphenated in the middle. And serious martial arts against the spotlit backdrop of the wall's huge decorative mahogany crucifix, with Blood Sister giving a good account of herself but still getting her wimple beat in. And finally, after several whirling kicks to the forehead, starting to bid adieu to her corporeal map and commend herself to the arms of God, until the unsaved recidivist vice mother superior nun who'd saved blood sister wiping blood from her eyes after a headbutt and seeing the mother superior about to decapitate blood sister with the souvenir Champlain era tomahawk, the Huron nun who'd been saved by the original founder of the Toronto tough girl saving order had used to decapitate Jesuit missionaries before she, the tough Huron nun had been saved seeing the tomahawk raised with both arms before the normally pious-eyed old mother superior's face, a face now rendered indescribable in aspect by the absence of humility and the passion for truth silencing that add up to pure and radical evil, seeing now the upraised hatchet and demonized face of the MS, the unsaved vice nun has a moment of epiphanic anti-recidivist spiritual clarity and averts blood sisters demapping by leaping across the office and cold-cocking the mother superior with a large decorative mahogany Christian object so symbolically obvious it needn't even be named. The object's symbolic unsubtlety making both Hal and Bridget Boone cringe. Now blood sister has the Champlain-era hatchet and the unsaved nun who'd saved her has an unnamed object whose mahogany's no match for a hatchet and they stand facing each other over the prone Mother Superior's puddle of skirts, chests heaving, and the Vice MS has a writhing expression under her askew wimple like, go ahead, 
make the circle of recidivist retribution against the nun you thought you had saved you, but ultimately couldn't even save herself. Complete, complete the lapsarian circuit or whatever. (laughs) They stare at each other for countless frames. The office wall behind them cruciformly pale where the unnamed object hung. Then Blood Sister shrugs in resignation and drops the tomahawk and turns and with an ironic little obeisance walks out the Mother Superior's office door and through the little sacristy and over the altar and down the little convent nave, bike boots echoing on the tile, emphasizing the silence. And a plowshare and a syringe and a soup ladle and the model Contraria Sunt Complementa, the heaviness of which makes Hal cringe so severely, it's Boone who has to supply the translation Kent Blot asks for, which, dear God, let's hope, and note 298, it's also a sly shtit directed aklef, of course, amounting to something like we are what we revile or we are what we scurry around as fast as possible with our eyes averted. <laughs> Though when shtit mentions the motto, he never attaches any moral connotation or to it or for that matter even translates it, allowing proractors and big buddies to adjust their translations to suit the needs of the pedagogical <laughs> moment. Contrarius sunt complementa. I guess it's sort of like the... Um, what what nourishes me destroys me. Yes. Uh, which I n- know that. What is that noise? I don't know. Is my phone on? Um. Okay, Siri's trying to do something. Oh no! Did I did, did I summon Siri with Latin? Yes. Con- contraria sunt. Uh, what? Uh, no, I've lost it. Uh, contraria sunt complementa. Uh, I can't. I'm not gonna make Siri. It's okay. Yeah. I don't know how to get out of this. What the. Of course, in my interest in tabloid culture, uh, what nourishes me, destro- destroys me, is, I believe, one of Angelina to- Jolie's many tattoos. Really? Yes. <laughs> that chick's badass. I'm sorry. Uh, on screen, we're still following the tough nun, or ex-nun. The fact that the hatchet she resignedly dropped fetched the prone mother superior a pretty healthy knock is presented as clearly accidental. Because she, blood sister, is still walking away from the convent, moving emphatically and in a gradually deepening focus, limping toughly eastward into the twittering Toronto dawn. The cartridge's closing sequence shows her astride her hog on Toronto's meanest street, about to lapse, backslide back into her tough, pre-saved ways. It's unclear in a way that's supposed to be rich. Her expression is agnostic at best, but the huge sign of a discount Harley muffler outlet juts just at the horizon she's roaring toward. The closing credits are the odd lime green of bugs on a windshield. (laughs) It's hard to tell whether Boone and Bash's applause is sarcastic. There's that post-entertainment flurry of changed positions and stretched limbs and critical sallies. Out of nowhere, Hal remembers Smothergill, he was trying to remember the name of an an actor and he oh, yeah. like, couldn't do it. Postlethwaite says he uh, and the id man brought Blot in to speak to Hal about something disturbing they encountered during their disciplinary shit detail in the tunnels that PM. Hal holds up a hand for the kids to hang on, flipping through cartridge cases to see whether low temperature civics is up here. <laughs> All the cases are clearly labeled. Is that a good... That's a good stopping point. That's a good stopping point. This will be a, uh, that's 31 minutes. Hey, we're on page 714. Yeah. Woo! 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 Uh so last we were talking about um what because this this blood sister thing seems so Tarantino-esque. Yes. Uh we were like has he ever written about it and somebody linked us from his um 
supposedly fun thing essay uh, on David Lynch, which mm. I believe he is embedded in the uh, production of Wild at Heart. Is that right? I believe so. Okay, I trust you. Uh, in which he had some... Uh, now, obviously, the context of this is that he uh, is writing about Lynch, and he is very cards on the table, a big fan of Lynch. Yes. As, like, uh, the possibly the great American director. Uh, and so he's talking about some of the uh, enfant terribles of uh, 90s indie cinema. Uh, your your Jarmouches, your uh, Tarantinos. Yes. People like that. Uh, and he basically, what he has to say is, like, uh, when you're looking at a Lynch and then you're looking at Tarantino, what you're seeing is an adult and a child. Mm, do you agree? Uh, I think he is fairly... I mean, look, the difference is, is that I think Tarantino likes to have fun in his movies. <laughs> yes. Uh, and he's, and a, he's appealing to a perhaps more base part of human yeah. nature. Than and Lynch. I guess it is, I guess it is theoretically true to just say that, uh, is this some kind of like 3D ball boy training program at Wimbledon? Sorry, we're wa- we're watching some live Wimbledon, and it seems like they're cutting away to like yeah, ball uh, ball boy training, ball boy girls, and then you have like it's like a three D screen, and you have your bag, your little box of balls, and then you have to like roll them correctly to three D, uh, tennis players. Interesting. All sponsored by American Express. Thank you, American Express. Anyway, yeah, uh, that. I think it's it's if you think that fun is childish, which I guess in a literal sense it is. It is one of the first things you do yes. in your life is have fun. Yes, uh, I get it. Um, you know, he compares. Let's say <laughs> this is so silly. <laughs> Sorry, we're really distracted. Uh, uh, the ball, this ball boy game is very funny. Uh, I guess it's like yeah. If if you where, where was I going with this? Fun, yeah, childish, childish fun. Um, yeah, the the big line in it is he's comparing, uh, let's say, the beginning of Blue Velvet with uh, the uh, climax of Reservoir Dogs. Both uh, contain the severing of an ear, and basically saying mm. that Tarantino is uh, purely, uh, facilely uh, uh, interested in the uh, cutting off of the ear. Yes. Whereas David Lynch is interested in the ear, the ear, yeah, it's a, it's like tech, text versus subtext, maybe. Yeah, I guess. Uh, which boo subtext? <laughs> Yay text! Yay text! Give me that text. Yeah, buddy. Uh, sorry. Now we're now the the. I assume these are British children because this is uh Wimbledon. It's hard to explain, but they're essentially playing like a Candy Crush style game that involves high speed rolling on the ground of tennis balls. In your ball boy stance. That hit like a, um, a, a LED screen. And then become digitized and then destroy a bunch of like digital hearts on the screen. Yeah. If depending on where you have hit or rolled the ball. <laughs> Again, I, I think this I said, sounds like something. I think I said it. this yeah. before, but it is funny in thinking about David Foster Wallace writing a novel about entertainment and then the main sport in it is tennis where the main thing that people do is turn their heads back and forth to yes. look at a ball. Isn't that, ba- that's like a baby. Yes. The, when you hold, like, one of the funniest, uh, I hope this, uh, what, what am I trying to say? Uh, several of our friends have, have uh, given birth to children in the past couple of years and it is funny, the cliche of the, um, the the plastic amalgamation of like circles and and discs and stuff yeah. in many colors that you literally shake in front of a baby's face to try to like 
gain their distracted. attention yeah. in any way or like to enrich enrich them in some way. Yeah. Uh, you know, that's that's just tennis. It's just watch watch green ball go back and forth. What is the most entertaining sport? I would uh, say basketball. Basketball is very I the pace of basketball can't be beat. Yeah. Um I don't I don't mind soccer either. Uh, it's just so much it's larger. Light, it's a lighter energy. Basketball is so concentrated. It's, yeah. The court's not that big, and the, the game the is very fast, very and the big. men are very big, so that's all very exciting. Yes. Um, yeah, and the game is very fast, and there are pauses, but they're not too many pauses. Yeah, I would say probably... Uh, probably basketball, but you know, if you're talking about games where you really need the, you need to provide the entertainment. I'd say probably baseball, where it's like you, you got to bring the vibes, bro. Yeah, you got to bring your math sheet to take to take all yeah, the, uh, to your workbook. Keep score. Yeah, this, this is only a semi, um, a semi distraction. But I had watched a TikTok of a girl who was critiquing certain bars in Brooklyn, and she was saying that they had no vibes, mm-hmm. and I was taking uh offense to that because you are the vibe yes uh, w- what is a bar lighting a couple of taps for beer four walls four perhaps walls a roof. perhaps a roof a, f- a bartender friendly or unfriendly you are the vibe man yeah uh do you think david foster wallace would enjoy watching the movie blood sister one tough nun yes what, how does he feel about yeah the- i think he would lo- i don't I, th- I don't think he would write it so luridly if you if he wasn't writing something that he yeah would love to to see I would I would like to see Blood Sister One Tough. Nun. I would like to see Blood Sister One Tough. Nun. Let's cast it, Margot Robbie. Margot Robbie. <laughs> name a woman for a dollar. <laughs> name a woman. Margot Robbie is the main one. Um, uh, I mean, any of the older, like T- Tilda Swinton, Tilda uh, Swinton. We Kate need three Blanchett. Generations, and you need a woman. Helen Mirren. Helen Mirren. I was thinking of yes. Um. Doesn't I mean the. I don't have to be naming all all white people. Viola Davis, <laughs> as the as yes, the vice true. the vice MS. I'm just thinking of that movie. Like against type. What about like a Reese Witherspoon as the second generation uh, nun, like a they'd, real perky? They'd have to really rough her up, but I don't see why not. Well, I think she could. I think it would, it would be fun for her to play an action an action part this at this part of her career. You know, mm-hmm. Emily Blunt. From everything I've heard about how Hello Sunshine operates. Uh, she apparently has the uh, tenacity and viciousness to do. Uh, She's one tough nun herself. Yeah, exactly. I, yeah. I, I, Although, please honestly, don't hold, it, hold this against me, but I've heard rumor that uh, Reese Witherspoon's production company, One Tough Tough Nun, or not One Tough Nun, Hello Sunshine, is uh, one of the most brutal and difficult work environments in all of Hollywood. Again, uh, the 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 challenge of the girl boss. Let's just recreate Scott Rudin's office again, but it's fine yes. because I'm a woman. Because I'm a woman. Uh, I'm 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 a lady I'm, doing lady stuff. And I'm not being uh, uh and centering female and voices. I am I am uh, holding women to a higher standard. I I gotta say, God bless Reese Witherspoon for like somehow reinventing the concept of like purchasing IP yeah. for. <laughs> movies like it, she somehow made it seem fresh and being like what if women's stories got got yeah. got did she did she produce gone girl i don't did she produce gone girl she produced the uh the the tv the bad little liars or what is it uh not they're pretty t- little liars big little lies big, big little lies i can't believe there are two shows that she did um the uh hiking what if woman was sad and hiked Why, which is uh, that movie wild, is called wild Sh- cheryl Strait. um that book was actually very good. I I defend that. Would you like to watch that movie sometime? No, absolutely not. <laughs> if I wanted to see a woman be stressed out in the woods, I would simply go camping. We could <laughs> we could do an Into the Wild and Wild double feature to see it from the male and female perspective. 
Oh, Chris McCandless, what an idiot. Oh, he... I <laughs> the older I get, the more I'm like Chris McCandless did nothing wrong, other than uh, uh, accidentally die. Yeah, uh, leave society. I think is going to be more and more popular. <laughs> Many people we, are saying it. More and more people are saying it. Time to get out. Uh, yeah, big big little lies. I read. My sister had it at home. It was a novel by um someone. Oh, what was her previous job? A, a like a producer at at HBO, like someone who worked in the script, like the scripted like. Yeah drama department of hbo and then it was her debut novel and it was like what if a woman had an affair while at the beach house <laughs> and i had to say i was reading it and i was like this is definitely is like kind of mid uh like not really treading any new territory but i'm like yes women eat this shit up yes ah it's not ha- it's not there, hard there was a show on showtime that ran for four seasons just called the affair the affair what if a woman had an affair what if a man had an affair what if a man had mm. <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's you think that's been overtread <laughs> <laughs> no, I think I think it's more it's the cliche of like when a woman has an affair. Oh, that's, uh, that's elegant, chic, um, uh, uh, self exploration, introspection. When a man has an affair, base, depraved, uh, tawdry, tawdry, uh, disgusting, C- cliche, dirty. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh man. Yeah. Um, no, yeah. What what if a book was for women? Um, Reese Witherspoon dared to ask. <laughs> and then a TV show. What if a, a TV show about a book was for yeah. a woman? What if I mean, a podcast what, was for a woman? What if a podcast was for a woman? <laughs> I don't know. I don't, I don't know. know. How, many pe- how many female listeners do you think Infinite Cast has? I don't know. I would say a dozen. A, do- a dozen? Yeah. I think it's more than a dozen. Well, let's see. I think we have about a thousand listeners. So yeah. uh, if if all of our demographic sliders uh, point to the right way that not only is mo- most of the audience probably going to get here from Chapo affiliated things, but then not only that, but it's about David Foster Wallace, famously the most misogynistic writer of all time. Yeah. Well, he's very, uh, yeah. I would guess, you know, probably like 1% of our audience is female. I'll take it. But then we have to balance it with, uh, the presence of you, Molly, a woman. Uh, f- yeah. This, uh, this podcast is, f- is 50% percent female. female. So that might expand our appeal, but <laughs> I, I gotta be, and this isn't a knock on you. This is a knock on all the, uh, other priors that, that would form as blockages. Uh, I don't think it, I don't think it's going to go that far. Yeah. It's that's fair. Fair enough. Uh huh. Um, so yes. What if a woman S- had salute, a podcast? Salute to our one to two dozen listeners. <laughs> female listeners. Salute. A salute to women. A salute to women podcast listeners. <laughs> <laughs> this is funny. If, there, if there's like a, co- a charity concert that wasn't for like, just I guess that uh, that, that would read so turfy now. Yeah. Like a, a, a concert celebrating women. No, you know, real women. That kind of women. That kind of women. You know what we mean. <laughs> you, you yeah uh what do we think about the uh the the ca part of this i mean you know other than me having to re- read the word colored a bunch of times which i don't particularly love uh on the record i don't i don't like reading the the uh the racist, the, parts. Ra- the racist language of this book <laughs> i need to state that get no pleasure out of that um i don't know it's just like yeah another i guess it's there's no uh <laughs> anytime there's like a harsh drugstore i'm like at least there's no incest this time yes thank god you know that wasn't that wasn't one of the more i said it was a harrowing drug story but that was honestly one of the more uh, pg rated mm-hmm. a guy just spent his family's money and then felt bad about it i think we were i don't know if i should say having a conversation about uh you know just trying uh Okay, I I think we can share this enough uh, without identifying information, but we have a friend who, uh, did her parents actually go through with this? What? They agreed to smoke crack together once. 
Oh, you were telling you this. You know this story. Okay, I I can share it vaguely enough that I, I promise it's real. But it's just, it's two parents who otherwise, uh, and they weren't parents yet. They were just dating. Um, they basically made like a a pact, a deal to like they had at they. They told their daughter, my friend. This, this was during the eighties, right? This was like yeah. During this is crack when crack times. was like, you know, wow, this is a fre- it's a fresh new way to get high. Um, <laughs> they in in their story, they found a bag and knew what it looked like mm-hmm. because they were Very drug likely. counselors. And I'm oh, like, okay. okay, whatever. Um, hopefully this isn't also still identifying. But I guess they uh they had it and were like, let's do it and uh let's just do it together once. And they did it and they said it was amazing and that they were immediately like. We let's get some more and then they, <laughs> and they did it they had to be like okay let's actually not uh it does smoking crack does sound like a very very pleasurable experience pleasurable experience and uh yeah i understand why it ruins lives yeah <laughs> especially yeah the the price is right kind of uh i would smoke crack no you what see this is the thing you Just you once. make the deal and then i don't know uh don't smoke, don't smoke crack, I, well, I don't think it's going to be offered to me. I don't even know where to get it. Yeah, exactly. That's the thing. If it was offered to me. Oh, we when we were having this conversation and some someone idly mentioned, uh, uh, how do you how do you actually make crack? And then you started singing the, the Rick, the Rick Ross, Ross song. All you need is bacon soda, some pots and, and pans. pans. <laughs> but to be fair, he doesn't give amounts or like a real recipe. No, he just he doesn't. gives the ingredients and the the yeah, tools. The you tools. Need. Yeah. Yeah. So. Uh, Pots and Pans by Rick Ross is a great song. So I'm just imagining uh, going on a rustic camping trip with your friends uh, and bringing hot dogs, uh, marshmallows, uh, graham crackers, and um, making some uh, and then also and then, then you're like, all right, well now that we've had our rustic dinner, like who's ready to cook up some crack? <laughs> campfire crack. Camp- just a li- just smoking. It. It's funny because I'm sure if I search <laughs> campfire crack, it would be it's it would. Uh, lead to a bunch of like white ladies cooking blogs about making like a real fucked up oh, tasty white. dip Talk or about something. The, the ultimate white lady. And I'm like, uh, no, I don't. I don't mean a uh, a dip with bacon and cream cheese in it. I mean, I'm going to make a crack at the campfire. One of the uh, funniest um, kind of li- linguistic <laughs> tre- trends crack. and then failures of trends is uh, <laughs> just just a little, just a little camping uh, crack. Yes. Uh, yeah, calling every like so yum yum delish can't put it down food. This crack. is like crack, crack pie, momofuku, famously, which I've had. And I'm like, it's fine. It's really sweet. Now here is the benefit of making crack in the on a camping trip. Go on. Is that you can only make so much of it, and then once you're done, you can't get you're more in the crack woods. in the woods. But then that leads to scra- scrabbling out of the woods in the dark with just a weak flashlight at two in the morning because you think you know a place where you can get just a little more crack. And then you get injured. You trip and fall on a tree branch. I really don't. And then I no really one can find so. you. I think that this is. I think this is actually the ideal way to do this in the woods. Oh, I've given you a terrible idea. <laughs> oh no. Uh, so wait, but the, the the final thing about the book is that we are to take from this thing that Joelle uh, has at least a strong crush on. She has a crush on Don. It is fun. also the visual of like if she's sitting down and you can see her knees, it means her skirt is probably pretty short. The idea of a short Whoa. skirt and a long veil is kind of funny. It is true. It's a funny. Uh, well, it doesn't um, have to be that short of a skirt to unveil your knees. Short enough, at you know, a little longer than knee length. When she's sitting, you see the yeah. knees. I was I was also a little distracted during the re- reading because I was trying to come up with a a good idols joke. Uh, you know the heathen from Eaton with the bag of oh, from of Michael oh. Keaton, but for a bag of of Bing um, Crosby. 
Oh, for about uh, it's hard to rhyme anything with yeah. Crosby. I know. Um, a, a, a Nosby from Croxley. <laughs> the, it has to be British. I'm sure the Idols guy could come up with a. <laughs> ah, he then from Eton with, with a, a bag, bag of, of Michael, Michael Keaton. Keaton. Uh, what is the name of that song? Never trust a man with a perm. Never trust a man with a perm by that's Idols. It. That's a good song. Did you show? Look it up. Look it up. Did you show me a TikTok of someone? It was like this is what Idol sounds like, and it was just like someone screaming over, like sc- screaming in oh, voice no, like this. It, it was it was a duet of, uh, like hard guitar music set to like the gas station car rant of just some oh. uh like some uh, uh Cockney guy. Yes. Uh, yes, and it was very funny. <laughs> All right, do we have anything else that we want to say here? I don't think so. I think I'm. I think I'm good. Okay, great. Don't do crack. I'm not going to. Uh, but just we, have coffee. We, mm, it's mm. like crack to me. <laughs> coffee, or as I like to call it, morning crack. The sa- the South American bean that you cook up in a way that yeah. tastes good. Oh, we call it crack bean stew. <laughs> <laughs> a full a, a three bean stew. A three bean stew. Um. Hey, we're going on honeymoon next week. Uh, we will be unprecedented. Out for three Sundays? Yes. But I have purchased a small travel podcasting microphone, so we are going to try to keep this up even as we uh, are on our grand continental tour. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the audio quality might be slightly different, but I think we're going to stay relatively on schedule with Infinite uh, Cast. So. Yeah, we got we got to keep plowing through. No, the Europeans might take the summer off, but we don't. Pod don't sleep. Uh, so we will uh, see you next week from Barcelona. Barcelona. Uh, full of patatas frit- bravas. Patatas bravas. <laughs> uh, all right. Goodbye. Bye.